I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Stephen Morris, the European Banking Correspondent. Joining me in the studio and from around the world today are Olaf Storbeck, our Frankfurt-based financial reporter, David Crow, the FT's banking editor who's currently on manoeuvres in Asia, and Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, who is here in the studio with me. This week, we'll be taking a look at the potential loss of Deutsche Bank's investment banking chief, a guy called Garth Ritchie. Secondly, a drop-off in performance at UBS, which has coincided with the loss of its high-profile executive, Andrea Orsell, and the collapse of UK peer-to-peer lender, Lendy. First up, an institution that's becoming a perennial feature on our weekly banking podcast, Deutsche. Olaf, can you bring us up to date with what's going on behind the scenes at the German lender, please? Yes, hi, Stephen. So they had another turbulent week last week with their AGM happening on Thursday and Christian Saving announced another round of cuts in the investment banking unit but didn't disclose any detail. And at the moment, they are basically behind the scenes trying to flesh out which areas they will cut, how many people have to go, where, how many assets will be hived off. And this is all complicated by another kind of internal tussle between the CEO, Mr. Seving, and Garth Ritchie, the head of the corporate and investment bank, who is resisting further cuts. And they are at the moment really trying to iron out how to sort this situation. Yeah, that's right. The two of us, we wrote about it over the weekend. Now, how is Mr. Ritchie viewed? I mean, he does seem to get paid quite a lot for some rather tepid performance. Could you just explain to us what he earned last year, which attracted the ire of some shareholders? Yes, Garth Ritchie was the best paid German Deutsche Bank executive, earning $8.6 million in total, which interestingly is almost as much as the entire Commerzbank board, which is, consists of seven people. And Garth Ritchie got a fat pay rise in late 2017. He's getting 250,000 euros a month extra for overseeing, as Deutsche called it, the Brexit transition process, which you might assume as the London-based head of the investment bank would be your normal business anyway. But he's getting this functional allowance on top of his normal pay, which is basically another fixed pay. And interestingly enough, if you look at the compensation report, he was not only the best paid executive, but also the worst performing executive at Deutsche Bank last year, only meeting 80% of his individual targets, which was reflected in his variable pay. But because of this high functional allowance and the relatively high fixed pay, he still ended up cashing in 8.6 million. And quite a few people at Deutsche are concerned that this conflict between Christian Saving and Garth Ritchie about the investment bank cuts might lead to the exit of Garth Ritchie, that he might either be fired or, which is probably the more likely scenario, might be forced to implement cuts which he doesn't support and then resign based on his own decision. He himself is denying this, saying that he's totally committed to the job, fully aligned 
and on the same page on strategy was Christian Seving. But quite a few senior people inside the bank told us that the bank itself is bracing for a potential departure of Mr. Ritchie, who uh, in late 2017 and early 2018 twice basically toyed with the idea of leaving. And this Brexit bonus of three million extra per year apparently was one of the concessions the chairman back then made to keep him but it's possible that we will see some top management change at Deutsche Bank over this investment bank cuts. So considering this might be the end of the road for Mr. Ritchie, in light of the fact he's offered to resign or considered resigning twice before, who are the top internal contenders to take over at the top of this struggling investment bank? There are three names which repeatedly popped up, all of them people in the sales and trading operation at Deutsche Bank. It's Yanis Piplis, Mark Fedorik and Ram Nayak. And another potential candidate is Stefan Hobbs, the young, fast-rising, confident of Mr. Seving, who is heading the Global Transaction Bank of Deutsche Bank since last fall. He would be another German elevated to Deutsche's executive board after quite a few other German confident of Mr. Seving were promoted last year. Yes, that's right. We're seeing a lot of new German executives who have spent a long time at the bank, maybe even their entire careers, being elevated under newish CEO Mr. Saving. So what about the other executives? One of the uh, most senior women at Deutsche Bank also suffered a very large vote against her at the AGM and is also rumoured to be not long for the bank. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yes, so Sylvie Matara, the head of regulatory affairs at Deutsche Bank, has been under criticism for a long time because she just didn't manage to get on top of all the regulatory issues, anti-money laundering problems and failing IT systems within Deutsche. Last fall, the German regulator, in an unprecedented move, publicly rebuked Deutsche for not doing enough against financial crime and terrorism financing and installed for the first time an independent auditor who is basically supervising Deutsche's improvement and reporting back to the regulator, which was quite a slap in the face of Deutsche. This combined with the ongoing scrutiny about Deutsche's role in the Danske Bank Estonia money laundering scandal, where Deutsche for a long time was working as a transaction bank, processing many payments from Danske Estonia, and the anti-money laundering investigation linked to a former Deutsche Bank subsidiary based on the British Virgin Islands is piling up a lot of pressure on Sylvie Matara. And as you said, she suffered a really bad result on the AGM with one of the big shareholders, most probably one of the two Qatari investment vehicles, voting against her. Also, regulatory officials in background meetings told me that they are basically expecting her to go sooner or later. So it's basically within the bank seen as a foregone conclusion that Mrs. Matara will be out of the door over the coming months. Some of her competencies are already being merged with competencies of another senior executive, Stuart Lewis, who's overseeing the risk operations or the risk management operations at Deutsche Bank. Officially, it's not yet clear who will lead the enlarged operations, but everyone at Deutsche expects that it won't be Sylvie Matara. And one challenge in replacing her is the fact that she's the only woman on Deutsche's board. There are nine executives altogether, and she's the only female one. 
And I think Deutsche will want to avoid getting another public slap for not having any female top executive and basically falling short on gender diversity, which is increasingly becoming a hot and important topic among investors. Indeed. Now, the CEO has promised a radical overhaul of the investment bank, which many people, including regulators, investors and large sections of the media, have been calling for for a long time. Just to round us off very briefly, what sort of areas will this overhaul focus on and when are we likely to hear about it? Officially, Deutsche Bank didn't say anything about which areas will be affected, but you can read between the lines in Saving Speech. It's a little bit like back in the 80s when the Kremlin was making statements where you really had to read between the lines to get an idea of what's going on really. And the areas he mentioned which won't be cut is GTB, the Global Transaction Bank, and areas which are either supporting other important operations at the bank to keep customers happy, for instance corporate finance, the M&A advisory business, and they will also protect operations which are profitable in their own right, which is the fixed income trading and real estate operations in the U.S., And this basically leaves the U.S. rates and U.S. equities business as prime candidates for restructuring and cutting or maybe even closure. But this is basically just by excluding the stuff which was mentioned positively and applying the principles having described to the units. The big question is when will we see it? The bank doesn't give any guidance about this. Last year, they had a similar sequence of events, and it took about seven weeks between the first announcement of some unspecified cuts to getting the full picture. So it might take some time, especially as this time it might be linked to creating a non-core asset operations. Depending on the size of the cuts, it might require raising some capital or some funds in some ways. They seem to be planning to announce one big bang, which also involves a deal in asset management with UBS, which is kind of under negotiation at the moment, but stalling. So there are quite a few moving parts. And if you factor in the potential management change, which could make matters even more complicated, it might really take some time. I think the deadline they will probably face is end of July when they are going to report their Q2 result and I think they won't be able to face investors and press without giving any additional details on what is going to happen in the investment bank. Yeah, with the declining narrative around Deutsche Bank going on for such a long time now, they really do need to move quickly to stem the bleeding. Thank you so much for that rundown, Olaf. So let's move on to our second topic after discussing Germany. This one's in Switzerland. Deutsche isn't the only European investment bank re-evaluating its strategy and suffering a bit of a drop-off in performance lately. UBS has had a tough few quarters, and here to explain what's going on over there, we bring in our banking editor, David Crow, who joins us down the line from her reporting trip he's on in Asia. So David, can you explain to us what has been happening over in Zurich? So as you say, it's been a pretty tough time for UBS recently. Two poor quarters, a loss of $47 million at its investment bank in the fourth quarter, and then a big, quite dramatic decline in pre-tax profit in the first quarter of this year. And this is remarkable, if you like, because UBS had been seen as one of the banks that had got its investment banking model right. It had taken its medicine at the right time, had shrunk to a size that was fit for purpose and had created an investment bank that played a supporting role, if you like, for its wealth management 
unit and now they too are being forced to ask more existential questions about particular areas of the investment bank. Are there areas that they should pull out of entirely, for instance, and do they have the right cost structure going forward? Now, a large part of this is about the mix of business at UBS's investment bank, both in terms of their product lines, the areas where they're strong, and also their sort of regional focus. They're not so big in the US and they're bigger in Asia and Europe. But a contributing factor, according to some people inside the bank, is the loss of the investment banking head, Andrea Orsell, who left the bank in the autumn of last year. And there are people that say things would have been tough anyway, but if we'd had Andrea here, we would have been able to counteract some of those external market forces. Tell us a little bit more about Mr Orsell. You've got to know him pretty well recently after dining with him for an FT profile. He's a very particular guy, very hard charging and very demanding. And there are some bankers, at least anyway, at UBS that say they've missed him, that if he had been there, he would have put the bank into what the chief executive, Sergio Motti, calls fuel saving mode earlier. And he would have driven those bits of the business that might have been able to offset trouble elsewhere in a more aggressive manner. And yet there are others that say, well, actually, that style of leadership was counterproductive. It resulted in a high level of attrition of top staff. And it maybe was right at a time, but but isn't right for the bank anymore. So the jury is out, if you like. But undoubtedly, it doesn't help the narrative at UBS that they lost this star banker. And this has coincided almost you know, when you look at the chronology of it, almost perfectly with the drop-off of their performance. And so there are questions being asked about the co-heads. They put two people in to replace or sell and whether or not that structure works. So, David, are executives working on any other changes, more structural, to address the underlying problems that are emerging with their earnings? The prescription from executives at UBS seems to be more of the same, a kind of a deepening of the existing strategy, which is to try and very closely link the wealth management business to the investment bank. And so when you have these high net worth individuals that are banking with UBS, how do you funnel them through to the investment bank to make sure that they're buying your products? And they've experimented with this in the US. They've got a unit that looks after this and there are plans afoot, we hear, to extend that throughout the operation at UBS. And really, it's about proving this argument that UBS has had, which was, you know, we need an investment bank to serve our wealthy clients. That's what they ask. And there are others out there that have a different model. Julius Baer, for instance, just manages the money, but doesn't have an investment bank. And at the point at which a client might need to access those services, Julius Baer passes them off onto another institution that can do that. And so I think that's what we'll see from UBS, more of the same, a kind of deepening of the existing strategy. Might we see some recruitment of another big name, considering how the bench of succession candidates for CEO Sergio Amotti has been weakened in the last year, with both the heads of investment banking and wealth management departing? 
I suppose one of the big outstanding questions is whether or not UBS buys into this narrative that really the problem is not just their business mix and the fact that they have been more exposed to external market forces, but actually they have a personnel problem. Actually, Andrea Orsell, a very unique individual who kind of created the UBS investment bank in his own image, if you like, that they need somebody to replace him, that this co-head structure that they have isn't working. And there have been names that have been linked to the job. Christian Meisner, who was head of the investment bank at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, has been linked to the job. But that's some time ago. And so one imagines if there had been any truth to those rumours, something would have emerged by now. But I think when you talk to some people at UBS, some of the investment bankers there, they don't think that the current co-head leadership model that UBS has at the moment is going to last in the long term. Thanks for that rundown, David. And finally, last week, just as the UK was getting ready for a long, sunny bank holiday weekend, Lendy, which is a peer-to-peer lender based on the so-called English Riviera down in Portsmouth, quietly slipped into administration. It's the biggest failure thus far, in Europe's nascent peer-to-peer lending sector. And here to explain what's happened and what might be coming next is Nick Magor, our consumer banking expert. So Nick, could you please run us through what was the imaginative named Lendy and uh, what has happened to the company? Yeah, so they are, as you said, based down in Portsmouth. Lendy was a property financing business that had a kind of fairly basic form of peer-to-peer lending. That is, the theory went, they would connect with borrowers, do this sort of due diligence and arrange loans for property developers. But rather than lending themselves from their own balance sheet, they would then connect them with hundreds or thousands of individual retail investors who would choose which individual loans they wanted to put their own savings towards. It's a fairly basic model, and it was a fairly basic problem that they ran into over the last couple of months, which is that they seemingly didn't do the best job of choosing which loans to give or collecting on them. They sort of ran up massive levels of defaults and legal issues in in some cases with some of the borrowers, which caught the attention of regulators. We reported earlier this year that it had been put on the Financial Conduct Authority's special watch list, which meant that the regulator and its creditors were trying to work to shore things up, kind of collect on the existing loans and avoid investors running into too much losses. That clearly has failed and administrators had to come in late on Friday. So what are the next steps for this company then? I mean, I guess both in terms of its investors, the people that have raised loans through it, and I guess from the regulatory angle as well, if they were on the FCA watch list, there could be some kind of probe coming? Yeah, so definitely on that second point, it could sound to an outsider obvious that the FCA would be investigating something like this, given that they were already on the watch list. But the FCA actually doesn't use the term investigation lightly. So the fact that they did say on Friday that there is an ongoing investigation into how this situation occurred means they think that something went seriously wrong. And one might suspect they could be particularly keen to sort of show their strength here, given that they've been criticised recently for their role or lack of action in the collapse of another company, which is the minibond provider, London Capital and Finance. And the FCA especially, they only gave Lendy its full licence less than a year ago. So they'll be particularly keen to look into this and show that they've been doing everything that they can to stop this sort of thing happening again. As for investors, right now it's kind of difficult to say with confidence exactly what will happen as the administrators have only been in there for, I mean, a couple of hours in working terms. They'll be looking through the books now and trying to work things out and they will do their best to collect on the remainder of the loans and wind down the book. But the likelihood is 
these retail investors who were putting money in to fund these loans won't get all of the money they put in. And you could be looking at several tens of millions of pounds in losses. Well, it certainly doesn't look good less than one year between getting your licence and collapsing. What, if anything, does this mean for the rest of the peer-to-peer lending sector, which has been particularly hot in the UK, continental Europe, and especially in the US? It's come at quite an awkward time for the sector. As you suggested, there was a time a couple of years ago, especially in the aftermath of the financial crisis, where a lot of big banks were pulling out certain areas of lending, that peer-to-peer was held up as the great hope. It was a way that companies or borrowers could get access to loans on better terms and then savers who are really suffering under low interest rates could invest in this and get much better returns than they would otherwise. Now, a couple of years later, a lot of the original pioneers in the space, people like Funding Circle and Zopa, have actually been moving away from this because of a sense that regulators aren't quite so keen on it and consumers might be getting a bit worried and thinking that it's too risky. For those biggest companies, they will probably just continue to emphasise that, maybe push even further away from trying to use that P2P label at all. The bigger impact is likely to be on the other more kind of retail investor-focused firms. The FCA said last year it had already suggested some changes to how the sector works, like limiting how far they can advertise to regular retail investors. They've been listening to and taking arguments from the firms for the past several months, and they're due to suggest some final rules in the next month or two. But, I mean, if you've just had a high-profile collapse, that's going to be in the back of their minds and might strengthen the resolve of anyone who's pushing for the harsher measures. Yeah, well, it's a very interesting story that we're going to keep chasing up here at the FT, uh, see how it shakes out both for the company and for all of its peers. Thank you, Nick. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you to Olaf in Frankfurt, David over in Asia, and Nick here in the studio for talking us through the biggest financial stories of the week. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at www.ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. And until next week, goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.